Well, good evening. Nice to see you. Uh, let's have our Bibles open, shall we, to uh, John chapter 20. Uh, as Adam has uh, already read for us, uh, let's bow our heads together and uh, let's, let's pray and ask for God's help in understanding uh, what's before us tonight. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the sure and the true testimony of Scripture, of these eyewitnesses who did not follow cleverly invented stories as they have told about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but truly were eyewitnesses of his majesty, as Peter tells us. And we thank you, Lord, that they were able to see the glory of the Father in saying of the Son, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And we praise you that we have the words of these teachers made more certain and Lord, help us to do well by paying attention to it as a light shining in a dark place. Help us to understand that no teaching of this scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, but these men spoke from you as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let us then approach with awe and reverence of you, and knowing that we are in the hearing of your word. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been working all the way through John's Gospel, basically over the course of this year. Seeing so much right from the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word referring to Jesus and the declaration of John right there from the off. This Word, this Jesus is God. Okay? Be under no illusions whatsoever. And as uh, John proceeds through that initial introduction, even in verse 14, he explains quite explicitly the word became flesh, became incarnated, took on flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, John says, the glory of the one and only. The one and only. He's talking about God. And incredibly, all the way through the Gospel of John, he has sought, as we see even in verse 31, he sought to write these things down. A testimony of who Jesus said he was, of what he did, of the the ways in which he addressed people and condemned them for their unbelief and for being slow to believe and commended and encouraged those who through faith received him. And believed in him as the word, the Lord who is God. Into the 21st century. Now, 2,000 years later, he's still calling us to do the very same thing. To read the words of this text as a testimony of the eyewitness that John is. And believe. To believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised king, the son of God himself. And that he died on the cross for our sins and was raised to life three days later. Appearing to his disciples for about 40 days before ascending to the right hand of the Father to take that place of glory and of majesty. My question for you tonight is, do you believe this? 
I was with you all the way when you were talking about Jesus and his good teaching, Liam. But maybe not when you started talking about resurrection. You know, it just spoils the Christian story. I've heard this. It spoils what you Christians have to contribute to the marketplace of ideas by saying, Jesus fed 5,000 people with this poxy little lunch, or especially the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Get a grip. Have you heard that? Why don't you just try and... Don't follow this mythology, demythologize it all, and then you would have something to contribute. Then Jesus would be someone worth listening to. No, actually, he wouldn't. But still, doubts remain in people's lives. Disbelief takes root and takes hold because they refuse to believe the plain testimony of the eyewitnesses that we have in our Bibles. People doubt. And people are skeptical. And that's one of the main questions we're answering tonight. Can a skeptic be saved? We have some slides on screen. Who's the most famous skeptic that you know just now? I wonder who it'd be. I wonder if it'd be this man. Richard Dawkins. He's got to be a skeptic if he writes a book called The God Delusion, right? His testimony is that he would... Someone was telling me earlier that he would rather believe that the earth was formed by little green men than believe in the Lord God Almighty. I don't know if that's an option for him. Um, but the question that we're thinking through tonight is, can, can a skeptic, can someone who doubts really be saved? Can someone who thinks this resurrection possibility, that's impossible. Can someone like that be saved? What needs to happen? For someone like Richard Dawkins to be saved. Your unbelief does not need to be as overt as Richard Dawkins. You must understand as well. You can be a silent skeptic. You can just not follow Jesus and carry on the way you're living your life. You don't need to write a book against Christianity. Trying to disprove it in order to be a skeptic. Or to remain rooted in that disbelief. What would Jesus have to say to a skeptic? To those who refuse to believe? I think it's part and parcel of what we see in John chapter 20 verses 24 and following. As he appears post-resurrection to Thomas. who has got a bad name for himself. Most people, even though they might not know what's in the Bible, have heard of the phrase doubting Thomas. This is where they get it from. And here's what I want us to do tonight. I just want to map out a couple of things for us and then finish with, a, with something of a challenge for us. Uh, number one, I want us to see a skeptic's resolve. And then number two, the skeptic's conversion. But number one, the skeptic's resolve. Here are the kind of things, two things I think, that in general you might hear someone who is disbelieving the gospel or someone who would call themselves a skeptic. This is what we might say. The first thing would be, I will not accept the testimony of the witnesses. Let me show you where I get this from. Look at verse 25 with me. So remember at this point that Jesus has already, the week before, appeared to all of the disciples except for Thomas. And he has appeared to them and he has said, peace be with you. He has breathed the Holy Spirit on them and he has almost really commissioned them as a father. has sent me, I'm sending you. But Thomas has not heard this and Thomas has not seen the risen Lord Jesus in his bodily form before him. 
So the other disciples are telling him, we have seen the Lord, verse 25 says, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. It's quite a thing to say. Skeptics tend to respond in this way, saying, I will not accept the testimony of these eyewitnesses. Thomas has missed this. And it seems like the disciples have been eagerly telling him, no doubt throughout the whole week, trying to get him to believe. He's missed the most, one of the most significant appointments in all of history. You know, I was trying to think during the week, I wonder what would compare to this in terms of an illustration. I really don't think there would be. The, one of the main things I thought was, was, imagine what it would be like in 2005 if you were in Istanbul and you were a Liverpool supporter. And at halftime, as your team were be, being beaten 3-0 by AC Milan, you thought, I've had enough of this, got up and left. Only to find out as you were listening to the radio on the way home that Liverpool won the European Championship that night with quite an amazing comeback. It's poxy, isn't it, compared to this? I don't know why I even bothered sharing that with you. Never mind. Anyhow, you get the point? These guys are trying to say, he has missed this most significant appointment and his disciples are, keep, are pressing on, keeping on telling him, we have seen the Lord. And actually the word told in Greek in here is actually a progressive verb, which basically tells us they're just keeping on telling Thomas, but still he wouldn't believe, he would not accept it. We're not told exactly why he wouldn't accept it. You can speculate on various things. Maybe his hopes had been dashed already. Maybe this is the man who is kind of shrinking back because of previous religious disappointment. He maybe had a concept or or an idea of being able to accept a man who would be the Messiah King promised of old to come and rescue Israel and indeed the nations, but a crucified Messiah? For many of these guys, it just wasn't in their scope. But he wouldn't accept it. He wouldn't accept it. And I think there's something similar in terms of application for many people today. There are many reasons why people are similarly skeptical. Even despite the testimony of Christian witness throughout the generations, even despite the, the exponential growth of this thing called the church from its meager, humble beginnings with these, what would be, 11 men. People refuse to believe the testimony of Scripture. That it is what it says it is, God breathed given authoritatively from above, spoken as I prayed before from uh, to Peter through apostles and prophets who were carried along by God the Holy Spirit. In other words, these words not having their origin in the minds, in the thought processes of men, thinking, I wonder what would make a bestseller in the first century. No, but genuinely from God. People doubt that. And significantly so to their detriment. Sometimes that doubt, sometimes that skepticism is just rooted in a general lack of knowledge. They don't know, they haven't had these kind of things explained to them. Perhaps that's all they need to counter that skepticism. And we should be eager to share. 
But doubt and skepticism can take other forms. Sometimes it's generated when a person comes face to face over some, uh, with some uncertainty over something that they believed previously to be utterly true. But there are, of course, far more complicated categories of doubt and unbelief. Sometimes a, a person's unbelief is deeply rooted in, in, in their resolve to continue living the way they want to live. They know that actually, even if they edge anywhere close to considering the reality of the words that they may read in this book or the testimony that they may hear from other Christians, they don't like the thought that it might actually change their lives and so shrink back. So there can be a willfulness that is without question, actually, a willfulness to the disbelief and skepticism that some people hold. And I wonder if there's anyone here tonight who's not a Christian, if that if any of those describe you, have you been resolute in saying before, I'm not going to accept the testimony of these Christians. I'm not going to accept the testimony of this word. I'm not going to believe it to be true. I pray you'll keep on listening tonight if you are here. And that speaks of you. I said there were two things that... A skeptic resolves, I will not accept the testimony of the witnesses. Secondly, I will lay down conditions to be met. So verse 25 again, Thomas has said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into my, in his side, I will not believe it. So alongside this rather adamant rejection of the testimony of the other disciples, Thomas sets out quite plainly before them as if to say, this is what needs to happen. This is what needs to happen before my very eyes if I am ever going to believe that Jesus is alive. If I am ever going to believe that what you have said is true. Thomas has heard all that Jesus has taught. As I said earlier, I was probably quite sure that Jesus was the promised Messiah been with him all along, but still it seems that for some reason he didn't have room in his theology, his understanding for this crucified Messiah, so he is demanding hard evidence. And I think skeptics today do the very same thing. Perhaps there are many people in this room and in the lounge downstairs who are Christians who have been at a point where they too have said, unless I get this, I'm not going to believe. Unless I get an explanation for this, I'm never going to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, it's not usually the case that people say today, well, unless someone comes back from the dead and tells us that Christians were right, I will never believe this, though I have actually heard that. I think it's more common today to hear people lay out conditions like, unless God gives me some kind of explanation for my past suffering, I will not believe in Jesus Christ. Unless I receive an answer for why bad things can happen to good people, I will not believe in Jesus Christ. Or unless you can convince me that science hasn't trumped an archaic belief system like Christianity, I will never believe. My encouragement for those of you who may have conditions, if you're here tonight and you're not a believer, to be very wary of laying demands on Almighty God. He does not welcome a demanding attitude that places conditions on him. And here's why. 
If you have in your mind a condition that must be met before you believe in Jesus. So if you say to someone, if I have X, I will believe in Jesus. Do you know what you're saying when you actually say that? You're actually revealing that X is your real God. You're actually revealing that X is actually what you want most. It's what you're really after. But the truth of the matter is, unless those who are skeptical will be, are, are able to drop the conditions, there will never really be any hope for faith. So this is the skeptic's resolve. I will not accept the testimony of the, of the witnesses I, and I will lay down conditions to be met. The question I asked at the start was, what would Jesus say in response to this? What would Jesus say in response to a skeptic? Well, let's see how he responds to skeptical Thomas. Look with me, verses 26 to 28. Uh, again, doors locked, Jesus appearing in the room saying, peace be with you. He homes in on Thomas. What does he do? What does he say to him? Will he crush him? <laughs> will, will, will he make a fool out of him? Well, no, let's see what he does. Again, a couple of, two main things. First of all, Jesus calls Thomas the skeptic, to be conscious of his grace. And this is where we see the skeptic's conversion begin. In verse 27, Jesus appears and instructs Thomas to do the very thing, the very thing that Thomas said he would need to do in order for him to believe. We saw that in verse 25. Jesus says to him, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. It's quite a confrontation in many respects, isn't it? I, I kind of wonder if Thomas thought, how did Jesus know? I mean, he's practically quoted him verbatim. I'm sure Thomas wasn't thinking, oh, well, I wonder if he appeared to Peter midweek who said, did you hear what Thomas said about you? I think it's more the case clearly that, that Jesus is demonstrating his wonderfully omniscient presence that he he is all-knowing he's God remember he he knows all things he sees all things and Thomas is surely beginning to believe and see that Jesus has been with them all along even with this repeat of the very condition that Thomas had laid down as he expressed his doubt and I think that's such an encouraging thing for us to remember even in light of those of us who have maybe been skeptical and laid out conditions and refused to believe the eyewitnesses. God sees all, God knows all, but still, isn't it extremely gracious of our Lord Jesus Christ still to appear and still to offer that invitation? I believe it is. Jesus is today still that ever-present God, who knows all things, who sees all things. Now, I admit to those of you who are non-Christians, that probably does not sound particularly comforting. But King David has once said, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my, my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. And before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Oh Lord. Now David, King David in the Old Testament saw that God sees all things as such a good thing. Yes, he's saying, 
God is always with me. Yes, God has seen everything that I have done. Therefore, I can come before him with complete honesty. But, but most non-Christians I know would probably respond by saying, Oh man, God is always with me. He's seen everything I've done. Not a particularly comforting fact for many. But listen, we can ease up on that reality, friend. And remember that the fact that, the fact that he knows all things and has seen all things should make it easier, like David, to be more honest with God. That there is nothing in your life that could ever shock him. Nothing in your life that could ever take him by surprise in terms of sinfulness and so on. He knows all things, has seen all things. And surely this is part of that which melted Thomas's heart. The fact that Jesus still appeared to him, even though he was so dismissive of others and their testimony. And even though he was so demanding, the fact that Jesus still appears is evidence of his great grace. And I believe that grace is still, still being extended to all who do not yet believe in Jesus, even today. The second thing Jesus does is calls Thomas, the skeptic, to listen to the witnesses. That's what verse 27 says, doesn't it? Stop doubting. It's very clear. Stop doubting. Stop your disbelief and believe. I find it striking that when Thomas does appear, uh, when Jesus does appear to Thomas, he, he, he does actually rebuke him, mildly so. Stop doubting. It's a telling off, essentially. But, and, and, and that's good to see because he doesn't say, Thomas, your doubting is okay. He doesn't say, this is understandable because you haven't seen me now. Here I am. Everything's okay. He, he says, stop it. And the condition Thomas was in was that he wouldn't listen to the other disciples and believe them, as I've said. But Jesus turns up and basically says, that's not right. Stop doubting what they have told you. Stop doubting what they have told you. But, and as I've said, still though, proceeds to show him his hands and offer Thomas the proof he wanted, which may seem strange to you. You might ask, well, why does Jesus rebuke Thomas and then give him the very thing he shouldn't be asking for? Well, we'll get to that in just a wee second. There's a reason for that. Well, actually, the reason for that is that in order for Thomas to be one of the true disciples, a true apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is absolutely necessary for him to see with his eyes and to obtain that tangible proof and tangible evidence that truly Jesus is risen from the dead and before him stands bodily risen. You see, in a way that no one else really gets to see except for maybe about up to 500 or so, as the scriptures tell us, uh, they get to see the risen Jesus Christ. The apostles in particular got every proof that they needed, all the rational proof, existential proof, uh, empirical proof. Why? Because these men were to be the very founders of the faith. In Ephesians 2.20, we are told that the apostles are the foundation of our faith. They saw him and having saw him and understood and received from him the Holy Spirit, they went out and they preached the gospel. And even as they were still alive and certainly as they began to die off, many of them martyred, their teachings were put into this book, the Bible. And we know what has been said 
remembering what I've said from 2 Peter already in prayer and, and in explanation and what Adam has already read to us from 1 John chapter 1 where it's, it's explicit. John is reaffirming the truthfulness of his eyewitness account and his testimony. He, it's as if he's saying, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That which we have seen with our eyes and touched with our hands, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. Jesus Christ. He's risen. And not one word of a lie. Thomas needed to see the risen Christ to be the credible eyewitness who would make the foundation of our faith. But here's the thing. We don't need to see the risen Jesus standing before us in order to believe. We see this, don't we, in verse uh, 29. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. There's a lesson coming here, isn't there? You can tell. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So it was necessary for Thomas to see that he would truly be an apostle, the credentials of which included you must have seen the risen Jesus so that your witness was credible. But for us, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. It's in this moment. You know those kind of TV programs where you have the characters interacting with one another. And then all of a sudden, it's like Scrubs. Anyone seen Scrubs? Yeah, I, yeah, I love Scrubs. It's one of the most realistic doctor and nurse programs I think I've ever seen in my life. You know, it's... Uh, it's uh, there's, there's JD, one of the guys that's uh, in the, in, one of the, the main stars of this program. He is uh, interacting with all of the other characters in the story. And obviously, the cat, you're kind of just like, you're, you're panning around watching these people through the camera. And then all of a sudden, sometimes JD just turns to the camera and makes a face or, or says something. And certainly, he basically, basically narrates the whole way along. It's almost as if you're watching this scene. And you're watching Jesus as he addresses Thomas and his doubt and his, uh, his skepticism and says to Thomas, blessed are, blessed are you because you have seen. Blessed are, but then he turns to, as if to look directly through the lens to us <laughs> as we are watching on, as if to say directly to us, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. It's as if, as if he's looking down this, this corridors of time, seeing every one of us down through the ages, looking at us as if to say, you don't need to see the risen Jesus in order to believe. Blessed are you who believe by listening to the eyewitness testimonies of those who have seen him. What does Thomas do in response to this? Thomas confesses his faith in Christ. Did you see in verse 28 what Thomas doesn't do? There's no actual hint that he put his hand in Jesus' sight. I think in that moment he realized that he had laid demands on the Lord of heaven and earth. That he had strongly denied the repeated appeals of those who love him to believe. And as he looks at those wounds of Jesus before him, 
or the face that shines like the sun. Humbly he says, my Lord and my God. It's a stunning confession of faith. He's, he's expressing his deep belief in Jesus. He is no longer a skeptic. Truly he has been saved. He declares Jesus to be exactly who Jesus himself claimed to be throughout his ministry. As I've said, John told us in John chapter 1, he, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. The word was God's. And I don't know how many times in this whole series in John that I've actually said of something that Jesus has said, this is one of the clearest claims to deity in the New Testament as we've heard it from Jesus. I don't know how many times I've said it, but I know I've said it a lot. Not to mention the fact that over 10 times he's taken the divine name of God for himself. And he, notably, does not rebuke Thomas for making such a great confession. I mean, if you were explaining who you were to someone and they mistakenly thought that you were God, how do you think they would, you would respond to them if they all of a sudden turned around before you and said, my Lord and my God? You wouldn't start telling them how happy and blessed he was for this. No. Unless you were the Lord God Almighty. It's an incredible confession. On the one hand, it's just a propositional statement. It is a declaration of truth. And Thomas believes it. But on the other hand, it is intensely personal. My Lord. My God. As if to say, I believe this and if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian I, I have to encourage you to see it's never enough just to spout out off holy sounding things as if we're repeating some kind of chant even if it sounds Christiany like Thomas our confession too needs to be something that is intensely personal that is uttered by a heart that truly and deeply believes what is being uttered and said. And the call of all of John's gospel is to believe the eyewitnesses. It is to hear them, their account of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to believe that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. And really to see, even by the way he deals with those who still continue in their skepticism throughout the scripture, throughout John's gospel, as they continue in their unbelief, how they will never be saved unless they too, like Thomas, come to him declaring, my Lord and my God. I mean, this is the one, Jesus Christ, before whom we are called to bow down. The one to whom we are given, are to give our lives. Realizing that no, not everyone will see the risen Jesus, but still called to believe the eyewitnesses to the point where Jesus can point you to the record of their testimony and say to us, even today, even right now in this building, stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. That's what we see in verses 30 to 31. It's the whole point of John's gospel. You too can be conscious of the Lord's great grace. 
you too can look on those wounds as we read of them in here, hearing the testimony of the witnesses who saw those wounds with their own eyes and touched with their hands and believe. Verse 30, look with me. Jesus did many other miraculous signs. Where? In the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these, these things that are recorded in this book, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Friend, understand this. The apostles, they keep on telling people today, Right now, we have seen the Lord. They are, they are testifying every day. That message is preached from pulpits like this one and all across our city and nation today. It is shared across desks, across coffee tables, all across the land, even in living rooms. Their message has been incredibly well preserved in this book. So what we should be doing is reading the eyewitness testimonies. Have you done that? If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, have you read one of the eyewitness accounts, particularly of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Are you aware of the credibility of the manuscripts? Have you read them? You should trust the testimony of the witnesses of this book and respond like Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. I pray that tonight you would confess your sin before him. I pray you would make the same profession of faith and that you may hear these words from one Peter declared even of you this night. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Why? Because this one you declare to be Lord and God is the crucified king who died on the cross paying the price for all of your sin that you may receive his gracious call to believe. And knowing that he knows all things and sees all things have no barriers before you. And so with trust and with humility, come confess your sin. Believe in him. I pray you will tonight. And I pray that we, as the church family here at Charlotte Chapel, would believe ourselves the testimony of the eyewitnesses and never be fearful or ashamed of sharing that which is true. We too can say, as they did, we have seen the Lord. Let's bow our heads together and let's pray.